Welcome to the Hillside Church Denver podcast, the home for content from Hillside Church in Denver, Colorado. Hillside exists to help people belong to Jesus people, believe in Jesus, and become like Jesus. And we hope that what you hear today does just that. Go to hillsidedenver.org for more information about this community of Jesus followers. And if you're in the Denver area, we would love to welcome you in one Sunday morning. But for now, on to the pod. We're, uh, we're in Esther. We've been talking about Esther for weeks now. Uh, next Sunday will be the final uh, message on Esther. It's going to cover three chapters, where we've been doing one chapter a week. Next week's going to be three, so plan to be here for a good long while. Um, <laughs> now we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna condense it all down. Right? Uh, this, is, this, this week is really kind of the, the pinnacle. It's kind of the height. Um, from here on out, this is, this is what we call the climax, and then the rest is kind of falling action as the resolution comes. Um, but today, this is the big moment in Esther chapter 7. That's where we find ourselves today. Um, but one of, the, one of the experiences I've had as a father um, is that on occasion in my children's lives, um, I have gotten upset. Any of you ever gotten upset with a child before? Right. All right. Love. And I have a problem in that when I get upset, I can be a very intimidating person. And I forget this until one of my children looks at me with fear in their eyes. Have you ever had one of your children look at you afraid of you? And know they're actually afraid of you. Right? They're not afraid of the consequences of whatever's come. They're not afraid of some abstract thing because that's not how kids think. When your kid looks at you in fear because of your reaction to them, they're afraid of you. And this isn't like a respectful awe that we talk about sometimes with the fear of God, right? This is, this is my kid is actually afraid of me. And nothing as a parent has broken my heart like the look in my child's eyes when I know they're actually afraid of me. They think I'm going to do something to them. They think I'm going to hurt them. And as an adult, all the thoughts and all the feelings go through my head, all the rationales go through my head for why I'm feeling this way, why I'm acting this way. And, and, and I reassure myself, my kid knows I love them. They, they know I care for them. They know I'd never actually hurt them. But in the moment, when they look at me that way and their animal self is evident in their eyes, I know they fear me. And I don't take that as a sign of respect or of love. They're actually afraid. And some of us feel that way about God. And I imagine, as much as the Bible tells us we should fear the Lord, I imagine that when we look at God with that same kind of fear in our eyes, with that same kind of puppy dog, animal fear, that my kids give me when I overreact to them, that it breaks the heart of God. Because it's not in his character to harm his children. It's not in his character to be the source of suffering and of pain, especially for those he calls his own, the ones he calls his children. And when I'm tempted to look at God with fear, I need to be reminded of who my God is. 
Just as when my kid looks at me with fear, I have to reset, I have to recalibrate, and I have to remind myself of who I am to them and who they are to me, and then I have to do all that is in my power to reassure them, all that is in my power to bring them back to a place where they know and understand that I am their father and I love them and I would never, under any circumstances, do anything intentionally to harm them. I have to recalibrate my relationship. When I look to God in that same kind of fear, when I look to God with that same kind of uncertainty, I don't know how you'll react to me, God. I need to be reminded of who my God is. I need to be reminded of the character of the God who pursued me when I was running away from him. And so I want to start today, rather than Esther chapter 7, let's, let's look to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, we're going to read verses 7 to 19. I want you to hear this before we go any further, because I need you, and we need to be rooted in the character of our God. And this is who our God is. Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. This is the truth of who our God is. Our God is love. But he's not a mamby-pamby, fully affirming kind of love that we might imagine if you go with the cultural definition of love with which we live right now, which is I affirm everything about you and all that you think about yourself, and I will never say anything to challenge you. God's love is radically different from that. God's love looks at us, takes an honest assessment of us, says, you can't save yourself and you're a hot mess and I'm going to die for that. God's love is honest, so honest that it leads him to a cross to pay for our shortcomings. So God's love is so honest and so real about our fallen human condition that he's not afraid to say, you were my enemy. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to try and make you feel good about yourself when you're a sinner far from me. I'm not going to try and make you 
feel good about yourself when you are my enemy, when you are running far from me. I'm going to be wildly honest about the human condition. So honest, in fact, that I realize, God says, you can't possibly save yourselves. You can't possibly make yourself better. You can't clean up your act. You can't make yourself righteous or good before me. You can't wash yourself enough. So instead, I will come and be crucified for you. And I will cleanse you in my blood. And I will promise you resurrection through my resurrection. And I will take all of the pain and the struggle and the toil of your life on my body and let it kill me. That is the honest love of God. And that is a love that no human being has ever given us. No matter how well-intentioned. That's a love that no parent has ever fully duplicated in their relationship with their child. It's a love that no friend has ever fully replicated in their friendship. It's a love that no human has ever been able to fully mirror in their lives. As close as we may come to it, as much as we may long to love people like God loves, no human love can touch the infinite love of a God who sits enthroned on high And said, instead of remaining here far and distant from you, I will come to you, walk in your shoes, take your sin upon myself, and give you the life that you couldn't earn. I will cleanse you to make you holy and blameless before me. This is the character of our God. Now, a God who would go to that length, a God that would go to that distance, We need never fear. Not in the animal fear sense. Not in the way that my kid feels when I overreact to them. Not in the way that we would look at someone who means us harm. A God who would go to that length, we should never have to fear. And that's what John is making. That's the point he's making here. Perfect love casts out that fear. Because a God who would overcome my sin by taking it upon his own body on a cross would never judge me for it anymore. Not once I have come to him. And that's why he makes it abundantly clear. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And he empowers us then to love like he has loved. With that same kind of self-sacrificial love. That same kind of enemy love. That same kind of pursuing love that would go after people that the world would say, you don't really need them in your life. This is who our God is. And he could not be more different from the king that Esther is dealing with in the book of Esther. The character of God on display in 1 John and in Romans 5 and all throughout the New Testament and in the person of Jesus Christ could not be more radically different than the king we see on display in the book of Esther. You see, now that we're in chapter 7, we've been following along this story. And we've seen King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus, whichever one you want to call him, we've seen him be swayed back and forth. We've seen him be mercurial, easily manipulated by his feelings at any given moment and by the people around him that he wants to appease. And we've seen the incredible work that has had to go into him reversing the charge he made against the Jews. So if, to catch us up, a couple chapters ago, King Xerxes was 
was convinced to put out a decree for the destruction of all the Jewish people by this wicked guy named Haman. Now, at that point in the story, all that Haman had to do to get this decree for the destruction of the Jews was go to the king and say, hey, king, you like me, right? So there's this group of people out there who don't really obey our laws, and they're not really Persian. They, they're not really uh, assimilating like we want them to. Um, and they're going to be dangerous eventually, so I think you should just wipe them out. And that's all he has to say. And the king's like, sure, Haman, go ahead and do it. That's it. But the work that it has taken to reverse that, to bring us to the place we are in chapter 7 today, has been monumental. We've seen God at work behind the scenes, like we talked about last week. We've seen God at work behind the scenes, molding people's hearts and changing circumstances and moving things in such a way to get the right people in the right place at the right time so that the king can be convinced to let the Jewish people live, to take away this order for their destruction. And that's where we find ourselves here in chapter 7. The king had been invited to a banquet with Haman and Esther a couple of chapters ago. And now we're at the second one of those banquets. Esther has thrown a second little feast. Haman and the king are there. And this is where things will turn around. Last chapter, we saw the king be reminded of the time that Mordecai saved his life. We saw the king elevate Mordecai, Esther's cousin who raised her. And we said, that's, that's the beginning point of the turn. And then here's the climax where you wonder, what's going to happen? The king is present with Esther and with Haman. And she's throwing a little banquet for them. And there's a little detail here I, I want you to note. At the beginning of the chapter, it says, on the second day of drinking wine. So they're, they're two days into this feast, and they've been drinking the whole time. So now Esther's going to make her plea. Now that the king is good and sloshed, she's going to make her plea to the king. And she goes to him and says, you know, dear husband, now remember, she doesn't know what's going to happen. She, she can't see the future. She doesn't know how the king is going to react. So far, we have been privileged to see from the point of view of God and of the author what's going on. So far, we have a view to the end of the story. Esther doesn't have any of that. For her, she's bringing this before this king who she has seen be weak and manipulated by his feelings and by the people around him. And so she waits till day number two. This abused girl who is just trying to save her people. And she goes to the king and she says, okay, now's the time. King, I want you to save my people. He doesn't even know she's Jewish at this point. We're supposed to believe he doesn't really know she's Jewish at this point. She says, there's this guy in the kingdom who has plotted to destroy my people. And the king, in his drunken state, looking at his wife, whom God has moved to love her, or to, to at least favor her, the king, looking at his wife, says, oh my God, who would do this? Who would plot against your people? Who would dare to try and take under the queen's own ethnic group? And Esther is able to say, that guy, 
Haman is the enemy and the adversary of my people. And the king in his rage goes out to the courtyard to plot what he's going to do, to plan what he's going to do to Haman. He's got something in mind. The king's got some plan for the punishment of Haman. How dare Haman plot against the queen's own people? And so the king is working up something in his mind out in the courtyard. Then he turns around. He's a little cooler-headed. He's ready to come in and pronounce his judgment on Haman. And what does he see? Haman, meanwhile, has been pleading with the queen. And apparently he, like, trips or something, and he falls on her. And so the king walks in the room, and all he sees is this, this guy on his wife. Take that where you will, right? And so the king assumes that Haman is assaulting his wife, trying to rape his wife, and that's it. Like, all of his cool-headed thinking is out. All of his judgments are out. He's like, you're you going to die. That's it. There's nothing more now. You a dead man. And so then one of, one of the king's advisors walks in, and he's like, he, he, he knows, like, don't imagine, this is happening in a palace, right? Nobody's ever alone in a palace, ever. Like, there are servants everywhere. There's people all over the place. So one of the king's servants is nearby, uh, and the servant's like, well, you know, king, um, Haman had a spike 75 feet tall erected in his backyard. And the king's like, that's it. It's done. And he has Haman impaled on the spike in his own backyard. I know, right? Ugh. The king in his wrath comes down on Haman. And that's where we are at the end of chapter 7. It looks like everything is going to be okay. The adversary and the enemy has been defeated. And it looks like the Jewish people are going to be saved. Mordecai has been exalted. Queen Esther has been respected. Her word has been honored. Her her honor has been upheld by the king. And now the adversary and the enemy is gone. And it looks like things are going to be okay. And so we'll get into the resolution of that in the next few chapters as we come next week to it. But as we park right here, I want to consider the whys of what the king has done here. Based on what we know of his character, based on what we've seen in this book so far, I want to to contemplate for a moment the whys of why would he even do that? Why, Why does he even care? Why does the king care about his wife's people? What is motivating him? It isn't a love for Jewish people. It isn't a love for their God. He is a man who is swayed by his temperament. He's a man who is swayed by the circumstances that he's in. He's a man who is swayed by the people that he thinks are important. And at this moment, he thinks Esther is more important than Haman. He's a man who is swayed by the people who can garner favor with him, by sucking up to him. He's a man who's easily manipulated by the crafty and wise people around him. Xerxes is not really a man at all, right? He's kind of a child who everybody thinks they have to suck up to and they think they have to manipulate. They think they have to get on his good side to get anything good out of Xerxes. And it's easy for us to look at Xerxes and go, that's ridiculous. Like, 
When wicked men like that gain power, it means nothing but evil for the world. And so it's easy for us to look at this situation and go, that man never should have had any authority at all. And yet, I would wager, I'm not a betting man, but I would suspect that many of us in this room And if not many of us in this room, certainly many people who would call themselves Christians have the same view of God that we do of Xerxes here. We think that God is someone who is upstairs in heaven waiting to strike us down, who doesn't always have the best thing in mind, who has to be cajoled and manipulated into giving us good gifts or the good things that we need. We think that God is someone who, if we don't say just the right words in just the right order, or we don't pray enough, or we don't do the right thing enough, or we're not walking in, the, in a perfect line, that God somehow is not on our side anymore. That God is someone we have to manipulate into getting justice out of. That God is someone we have to manipulate into getting good things out of. That in order for God to be on our side, we have to give him the right stuff and pray the right prayers. We think magically about God. We think that God is a toddler like Xerxes who just happens to have a whole lot of power over the world in our lives. Now, we would never say that. We would never on earth say that we think God is like a petulant child ruler. We would never in a million years say that that's what we think about God, but that's what we do. That's how we act. That's how we behave. That's how we talk even. Did I say the right words? Did I do the right thing? I'm not getting what I want, so do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? We treat God like a magician or like a magic spell. If we just say the right words and we just do the right thing, then God will give us what we're asking for. Then God will come down and bring justice. God will bring the right thing. God will bring good things. But that's not how our God operates. He never has. God's never operated in a way that says, well, if you just do this, 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 and this, then that's exactly how you get what you want. Now, God has made promises throughout the Bible of blessing for obedience. God has, throughout the Bible, said, look, if you will just live in this way, then I will bless you. But that's not a magic spell. That's a promise. Magic spells are what pagans do. Magic spells are what witches do, what wizards do. It's not how God operates. Jesus himself addresses this in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 6. He says, when you come to pray, don't babble on like the Gentiles do. Don't babble on like the pagans who think that God will hear them because of all their words and because they're so eloquent. Basically, what Jesus is saying there is like, don't treat God like you can say a magic spell and get what you want from him. Your Father in heaven loves you and hears you and will respond. That's it. That's enough. It's like when my kids come to me and they say, Dad, you know what that means, right? Um, spit it out, kid. Right? You've been there, if you're parents, or if you've nannied, or if you spend any time with kids at all who try to get what they want out of you, they always start with that long intro. Right? And then they'll add a billion words before they make the request. I tell my kids all the time, just spit it out. I've already decided whether I'm going to give you what you want or not. Just say it. Just tell me what you want. Right? And then there are other times when I say, you know, I really wish 
that every single time you step into my presence, it wasn't to ask me for something. Maybe I just want to spend some time with you. I wish you just wanted to spend some time with me. God is good, no matter how many words you use in prayer. God is good, no matter how perfect your walk is. God is good, no matter how obedient you've been this week or last week or the week before. Or no matter, what, how, no matter how much you intend to be obedient to him this coming week. God is good and God is just regardless of what you lay before him. Regardless of what you bring to the table. This is the good news of the gospel. You couldn't bring enough for God to love you. You couldn't bring enough for God to be good to you. He's good to you because he's good to you because he's good to you because he loves you. Just because he loves you. Jesus didn't come because he foresaw that you were going to be some great person. Jesus came because he foresaw that you were going to be a desperate sinner in need of his salvation. And our God is good because our God is good because our God is good and he doesn't need us to cajole him. He is not like Xerxes. And so when God looks down and he sees kings like Xerxes and he sees men like me ruining the world because of our big egos... He says, i got to do something about this. And so first, he gives a country. He, he, gets, he adopts a people. He calls Israel up to be his kingdom. But what happens? Egotistical men take over that kingdom too, and they ruin it. And they wreck all that God intended. And so God comes through and he says, you know what? That wasn't right. That wasn't enough. That was right. That wasn't enough. That was, that was to point to something even greater. And he sends us King Jesus. The one king who's ever come to walk in the shoes of common people like you and me, of sinners like you and me, and to rule and reign over this world perfectly and justly, to call us into a relationship of love that doesn't require manipulation, doesn't require perfection of us because Jesus has already given us his perfection. This is the good news of the gospel. Poor Esther here. She was viewed by the king as an object for his pleasure. Mordecai was viewed as an object for his protection. Haman was viewed as an object for his advancement and power. Everyone in Xerxes' life existed to serve him and to prop him up and to build him up. Jesus is the one king who has come who didn't look at you, sister, like you're an object for sex. Who didn't look at you, brother, like you were an object for his advancement who didn't come to use us, came to love us, to serve us. And so Jesus can say the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the character of our King. This is the character of our God. He doesn't need us to pile up thing after thing after thing to earn his love. He loves us because he loves us. He gives to us because he gives to us. He's good because he's good. It's just because he's just. It's just who he is. And it will never, ever change. God will always be good and right and just and true. No matter how much we pile up in front of him, no matter how many baubles we bring or piles of gold we bring or words we say in prayer, our God loves us and is on our side. He exists to bring justice and goodness and rightness to the world. And as the song says, if it ain't good, he ain't finished yet. Our God will work 
until all things are made right. So we can be grateful. We don't have a king like Xerxes. We don't have to play by the rules of the world. We don't have to play by the rules of society that say you got to bring a bribe, you got you to pile things up, you got to go to God with your, with your prayer spell to get things for you. We go to our good God and we trust him with everything. And we know that he is already ready to issue his grace, to bring about his good purposes. We know that he is good and trustworthy. In Christ, we've been welcomed into relationship with this God. In Jesus, we have been welcomed into a love relationship with the God of the universe who doesn't want to use you, who didn't make you as an instrument or as an object, who didn't make you simply to be a pawn in his service. We are welcomed into a relationship with a God who made you so he could love you. And so he could empower you to love others. That's it. That's the whole game. That's all that there is to this. God made you to love you. And in Jesus Christ has poured out his love in ways we could never express in ways we could never comprehend fully and calls us into that love relationship with him and with one another. And that's why he's given us this table. That's why he's given us the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. So that when we come here together as his people, as followers of Jesus, we can be rooted and anchored in the love that our God poured out for us that we could not earn, that we do not deserve, that pays for our sin, makes us holy and righteous and empowers us to love people just as we have been loved. To look at others who we might consider our enemy and say, wait a minute, God came after me when I was his enemy and now I'll pursue you in love as well. This is why we come to this table, to take into ourselves the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, to take into ourselves the power of God to transform our sinful, broken hearts and make us holy and blameless before our God. And so we're gonna come and we're gonna partake. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, I invite you to come, to make a line in the center and to come forward, to tear from the bread and dip into the cup, or if you prefer, take a pre-filled cup. And then on your way back, partake of the body and blood of Jesus shed for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, now is your moment to turn over your life to him. The only king who ever laid down his life for you. The only God who created you not to be a pawn in his game, but to be a person who he could love. The only God who selflessly gave himself for you.